Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Interchange was founded inside of Bond, the embedded finance company. This podcast is a place for conversation, questioning, and open learning about the future of embedded finance. We have something special for you today. At Bond, we do a monthly speaker series where we bring in legendary leaders to speak with the entire Bond team about their experiences. We've been graced with the presence of Dan Rose of Facebook and Amazon fame, Sherry Heyman of MasterCard, and today we have a very special guest, Flory Marquez, co-founder and SVP of operations at BlockFi, who is kind enough to let us open source our learnings with the Interchange community. This is a bit different than the average Interchange. You'll hear multiple voices jumping in and asking questions. We cover the importance of perseverance, engaging with regulators early and often, and how to move fast while knowing what you can and cannot break. Hint, hint, laws and trust. I hope you enjoy this special interchange. Thank you everyone for joining uh, the June Bond Speaker Series. As, As folks know, we've been learning, driving new thinking here with folks like Jack Dorsey, Sherry Heyman of MasterCard and, and Dan Rose of, of Co2. Uh, today, really excited to introduce Flory Marquez, co-founder and SVP of operations at BlockFi. So uh, just to go into your, your official bio, uh, Flory has spent her career managing alternative lending products. In the marketplace lending industry, she helped build, scale, and optimize a 125 million portfolio for Bond Street, which was acquired by Goldman Sachs. As head of portfolio management, Flory managed all operations from point of origination through default and litigation. Prior to Bond Street, Flory helped develop and maintain institutional partnerships at Oak Hill Advisors, a $30 billion fixed income asset manager. Flory graduated from Cornell University, majoring in pre-law with a minor in economics. Very excited to be here and tell you guys more about um, how I know McKaylee and the things that I've been building at BlockFi. It's been a wild story. And I think I've been using this phrase for the last year and no one's corrected me. I do think we're one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing fintech company in history. So um, there's some great things about that and there's some horrible things about that. So um, yeah, just excited to tell you more about me and uh, hopefully get you excited about building something from scratch, which I think is the best job in the world. <laughs> uh, well, Flory, I heard that you like the wrap it around uh, questions and I put together a few of them for you. I think this is going to be kind of fun to have the team get to know you a little bit and just your preferences. So here we go. Um, the most interesting thing in your wallet. Self-marketing moment here. I actually have the block by crypto rewards card. I got one <laughs> of the first ones and it's in my wallet and I've been using it and stacking up that free Bitcoin. There you go. I think you'd be remiss if you didn't have one. Um, what new technology will transform the future outside of uh, Bond and BlockFi, of course? Um, hmm. The first thing that comes to mind is um, like my, this is, uh, I think one of the best use cases for the blockchain if we're ever able to figure it out, but putting voting on the blockchain, um, maybe not specifically for the United States, but for other countries. Um, wow. I think it would take a lot to get that done, but it'd be nice to have. Now moving on to, to more of the, the, the meat of the conversation. Um, so 
first question is for those not in the crypto game, can you just tell us a little bit about what BlockFi is and what it does? Yeah. So um, we are a financial products company for crypto. Um, and we offer three products on the retail side. Uh, the first is probably my favorite. It's an interest account. So you can send us cash and that gets turned into a stable coin. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's kind of like a Venmo balance. It's not a dollar, but you can turn it into a dollar whenever you want. And we actually pay 8% on that. And that's interest paid out monthly, but it's an annual 8%. Um, and I love that product because you can also use what we call Flex and you can earn the interest in crypto. So you can give us cash and then earn the 8% in Bitcoin, for example. And that, that way you can have Bitcoin and never actually buy it. Um, the second product is trading. So you can buy and sell different types of cryptocurrency. And the last product, which was actually the first product that I built, is a US dollar loan. So you can borrow US dollars against your crypto. And we joke that we started with our hardest, highest friction product first. Everything else has like way higher profit margins and was a lot easier to launch and way not, not need, nearly as tedious on the licensing front. Um, and the way that our business model works is we take the assets that are deposited on our platform. So right now that's 15 billion in assets and we lend those out to institutional investors. So people like Fidelity and Susquehanna um, and CMT Digital, a lot of traditional names want to borrow crypto. And there aren't a lot of places where um, or a lot of platforms that have clean KYC crypto with good AML programs. Um, and also an understanding of institutional products. And so um, we're one of the biggest uh, places where institutions can borrow crypto and leverage and use different financial products. We also offer things like OTC trading. It's very similar. We just take asset management and financial products that have existed in the US for decades, and we apply it to crypto. Um, and today we have over 800 people on our team across the world. Uh, mostly in the U.S., but we also have offices in Poland and Argentina, London and Singapore. And uh, we most recently closed our Series D uh, earlier this year. Amazing. I can't believe it's 8%. <laughs> um, I'm going to pass it over to Bora, who has a question. Yeah. Uh, hi, Florian. I'm Bora, Director of Strategic Initiatives uh, here at Bonds. Uh, my question is around raising. I know BlockFi has currently secured over $500 million in funding today, which is incredible. But I assume it was not always so easy, you know, going back to 2018 uh, for your, you know, seed round and Series A in 2019. What were some of the pain points, you know, some of the learnings and tips um, you came out with that? Yeah, um, great question. And um I think we definitely are in an awesome position now to fundraise, and that's largely because of our metrics. I think one of the things I love about our board and fundraising is that um, we actually, for a very long time, probably up until the last few months, had horribly um, formatted presentations, and that's because people just wanted to see the data. Um, so I just love the efficiency of that. Um, mostly because my first job was in investor relations doing a lot of decimal alignment. So I appreciate a company and situation where that's not important. Um, but the first round of funding was in December of 2017. So Zach and I 
sat down basically in August or September, right as um, the Bond Street team, so McKaylee and Co. were going over to Goldman. Um, and in that time, I had done institutional finance before, and I kind of wanted to start my own thing. Zach had this idea to build loans backed by crypto. I didn't know that much about crypto, but I knew a lot about loans. Um, so it was perfect because I got to build what I knew and also learn something completely new at the same time. Um, and the first round was incredibly difficult because people in crypto didn't understand the power of like financial products in this type of business model. And the VCs that were typically fintech VCs uh, were really scared of crypto. So w- most of the VCs that have invested in BlockFi, we were their first crypto company. And being the first for any investor, getting like convincing them that this is a good value proposition is incredibly difficult because VCs typically they have a formula that's proven and they have this model that they plug everybody into and they want to see the metrics that allow them to project out the returns that they want to see. Um, and so when you break that model, it's it's really hard for them to wrap their minds around and kind of get that proposal over the finish line. And also, if you think about it internally from their standpoint, you don't really want to be the one analyst that's like shilling the crypto company and then be wrong. Um, so it was very difficult. It took us six months to raise the the first round and the investor that we got was consensus which is just a blockchain company and they kind of like threw money at four startups (laughs) um and it was really really difficult to get anyone to believe in our product and also right after we raised the first round that was december of 2017 and we wanted to start lending use the cash to start making loans and anyone that was investing in crypto knows that in december of 2017 each Bitcoin was $20,000. And that January, it fell all the way down like to 10,000 and then even lower to like the $4,000 range. So Zach and I, you know, so closed this round and then we were like, all right, let's just go build confidence from crypto investors. And our entire thesis was that people had accrued all this wealth investing in this asset and they would want to borrow against it. And then overnight, as soon as we closed, that was essentially wiped out. Um, so it was hard to get there. And then the second that we closed it, it was hard to kind of face the reality of the market conditions and loans, especially the ones that we make are extremely market price dependent. So when the price Mm -hmm. falls, um, the way our loans work is you have to put twice the collateral as the U S dollar amount. So if you want to borrow $5,000, you give us $10,000. Um, and then if the price falls, you have to give us more collateral or we liquidate some of your crypto to pay back your loan, or you can pay down your loan in cash. But the problem with cash is that it moves a lot slower than, than crypto. So we never recommend anyone sends us that. Um, but so when the price falls, borrowers don't want to borrow because they don't want to get margin called the second they take out a loan. And the amount that they can borrow is a lot smaller. So our one product just was like <laughs> demand went through the floor. Um, and we just kept building and we use that as a time to like improve our product. And, um, it took a lot more kind of, um, outbound sales approach. So basically the way we closed all of our first loans were Zach and I would just go to all the crypto meetups in New York (laughs) and personally try to convince people to use our product. Um, and then 
the biggest pain point with the Series A was we had used about like a third of what we had raised to make those loans. And then we were trying to get a financing facility to finance the US dollar loans so that we could continue to grow. And no credit investors would believe us that the product would have zero default losses, right? That we would have perfect performance. And the reason why we knew that we would have perfect performance is because if the market fell, crypto is 24-7 liquidity. So we can sell and pay ourselves back at any time. Um, but again, when you're the first to do something, it's really hard to convince investors who have been looking at markets for decades and they've never seen a 0% default loss portfolio that like this extremely volatile asset is going to be perfectly performing. Um, and here we are three years later and we were right. And all the investors that tried to give us credit facilities at extremely high interest rates that we didn't take were wrong. Um, and we ended up being able to get do like a series seed uh, extension with Galaxy, which is like Mike Novogratz, huge crypto enthusiast. Um, and they set up both a facility to buy the loans and they invested in the company. Um, but I think whenever you start a company, it's you hear for every one yes, probably 70 to 80 no's. And you also hear a lot of very rational reasons why your company is stupid and why it will fail. Um, and why you're the wrong team, and <laughs> a lot of a lot of really valid reasons that make like can make you question why you're doing it. Um, and I think that uh, hopefully what we've been able to accomplish at BlockFi is proof that um, you you know your product better than anyone. Hi, uh, I'm a product lead at Bond, um, and you already touched on part of the question, which was around kind of what was that first most challenging product that BlockFi launched. Um, but curious what that experience taught you overall about the process of launching a new financial product and how that's constantly evolving. Yeah. Um, so the loans product is definitely the hardest product. Um, and I think it's hard because it's regulated. And so not only, and it's hard because you need money to make loans. It's not like a product that exists. If you create it, um, you need to create it, you need to make money and you need to find the customers and you need to convince regulators that it should exist. Um, and we, so the, one of the hardest things with the loans was I knew for a fact that the California regulator for getting licenses was the hardest one based on my experience at Bond Street. Took us a while to get that one there. Um, so I decided to start with that one first. And um, they had they didn't even know what crypto was. And so there, I've been on a couple of podcasts talking about how it was like, the regulator told me that we were a pawn shop. And then I called like the SF police department to get like a pawn shop license. Cause I was like, okay, if you're gonna tell me to do this, I might as well try and get the no from them in writing to tell you that you're wrong. Um, and the police department was like, crypto is not a physical good. So you're not a pawn shop. And then we went back to the light to the regulator and we had to do all these things, which is essentially like filing an opinion and it took them months to review. And, it, and then they wouldn't put it in writing, but they did call our lawyer and say, like, we apologize. Like you were right. You are a lender. And then they gave us the license. Um, so as I said, like we raised the round of funding prices, like fell and we were like, shit, <laughs> what did we just do? Um, 
And we started lending and we eventually the prices like stabilized and recovered and we started lending all through um, 2018. And then um, towards the end of 2018, the prices started to fall again. And when you're an early stage startup, you need to be up and to the right. I'm sure you know this. You need to show growth. And there's this immense pressure to show growth and prove that you have product market fit. So once we started recovering, but then towards the end of the year, we were having trouble continuing to originate loans. Um, we were worried that we had an incorrect business model and that we wouldn't be able to raise capital again. And um, I think the way I phrased it earlier to Michaela and Amanda was like, this is where we die. Is this where we die? Is this where this ends? And um, Zach and I as founders have always been interested in building something that is either successful. And if it's not, um, I'm not really interested in kind of like driving something to the ground until it ends. Um, we both agreed that if it's not working out to just like cut our losses and walk away, which I think is something that takes a lot of humility. Like sometimes people will like grab onto something that's not working for too long. And we knew upfront that that was not something we were interested in. Um, so beginning of 2019, we're like, great. We haven't been acquiring customers. Our loan portfolio has been growing. Um, and we had a couple different products that we wanted to launch. And the second product that we thought about was the interest account. And the interest account, we had come up with the idea because towards the end of the year, we actually started realizing that we could finance the loans with the collateral people were sending us. So we realized, oh, if you give me Bitcoin, I can lend that out to Susquehanna and Susquehanna can give me cash as collateral to borrow that Bitcoin and I can use that cash to fund the loan. So that's when we said, okay, like bye-bye financing facility that costs about 10%. I can just do this myself for free and make way better margins. And then we realized, wait, why don't we offer this yield to our clients? And we were kind of on the way down, not acquiring customers. And I remember I came back from vacation and Zach was like, we need to launch the interest account in three weeks. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, how is this regulated? And the answer to that is we're still figuring that out. Um, but um, we launched it to select clients that we knew were high net worth with no UI. And we just sent them like, a, we told them we would send them a PDF at the end of the month with their statement. So I would like, email someone a wallet address, they would give us crypto. And then we gave them like a PDF statement of the interest that they had earned. And meanwhile, we were like sprinting to create like a login experience so people could actually, yes, it was literally the ultimate MVP. It did, it did not exist except for a phone call and an email. Uh, but people loved it. And they really wanted access to these products because at that time, everybody was keeping their crypto on exchanges and getting nothing for it or on on in cold storage or in your own personal wallet. Um, and so we sprinted to get out the real MVP that would have, you know, a wallet address on your login experience that you could deposit to. And there's two things about launching that that I think were hilarious and horrible. Um, the first was that on the day that it publicly launched, we used to have a little drift bot on our website. And we got so much traffic. It was like me and two other client service people at the time. I still manage CS. It's about 150 people today. At the time, it was like me and I think one other person, actually. We got so much live traffic on the chat that everybody 
that walked into the office that day. And it was a total of 10 people. I remember it was this guy, Mo, on finance his first day. And Zach like screamed and he was like, Mo, get on the chat and like start answering questions. So, like similar to my Bond Street experience, like he knew nothing about our product. And we're both, he's like yelling at me like questions and I'm like yelling at him. We have like a hundred conversations and we're both like weaving in and out trying to answer questions. And then finally at lunch, I'm like, really dizzy from just like the extreme focus I've had on this chat bot. And Zach just like looks at me and he's like, shut it down, just shut it down, like take it off the website. So we turned off the drift bot and we took it off the website. And we actually like still to this day have not put live chats like slowly coming back, but only in beta. Um, and the second thing that we did with that product that was insane is we launched a way for you to deposit with us. But we just completely missed a way for you to withdraw. So we like <laughs> let it out into the wild. And then someone like a couple of days later was like, hey, can I get my crypto back? And I was like, give me a second. And so I created like an email address called like withdrawals at blockfi.com. And if you emailed it from the email associated with your account, it would trigger a type form that I had set up like through Zapier. And you had to like, fill out this type form with your like withdrawal address. And then I would like send you a test deposit and you'd like respond with the amount. And then I'd send you the full amount. So um, ultimate MVP was the paper thing. And then this, <laughs> just the thought of the fact that we launched that and we were like, wait, we forgot withdrawals. <laughs> Lori, this is such a relevant and interesting anecdote. Like in, in the world of FinTech, right? Obviously we're highly regulated and, you know, and and we obviously want to move fast. We're from tech, right? Um, how do you balance move fast but not really break break things? I, I thought that anecdote you just shared was was so was so appropriate, right? You're, you're trying to launch it out, and whoops, um, you know, well, how how do you all approach it? I think you just have to know what are the things you cannot break, right? And so for us, um, that's trust and regulation, right? And so the things that like we know we cannot ever mess up are things that impact consumer trust in us and also anything related to the regulatory environment. So from the beginning, um, the main focus was the first person that I hired, who McKaylee knows and is now our chief compliance officer, um, is our CCO. And even before we had cash, I was working with him on the BSA and AML program and how do I structure this as close to banking standards as I possibly can? Because I knew that if you're a fintech company, you have to play by all the rules and you also have to play by the rules that don't exist yet. You have to think about the rules that will exist to govern your business and make sure that you're thinking about how that will affect you and implementing structures to support it today. Um, and then consumer trust. And obviously, um, like, launching a product that didn't have a secure way to withdraw probably impacts trust a little bit. I do think that in crypto, there was a lot of leeway, especially early on, because there weren't a lot of real companies. So people, especially in the crypto community, like people wanted something to work and our, our clients are really engaged. We have incredible um, feedback on surveys. Like if we send out a survey, 80% of people that get it will fill it out. And then half of them will give us like long form responses at the end. It's just a really engaged community. Um, and so I think we did have a little bit more leeway early on. But for example, there've been a lot of days where um, for operational reasons, like 
maybe withdrawals are, are delayed. And we know that no matter what happens in our business, withdrawals have to go out on a daily basis because the second that people think they can't get their money on time, that creates a lot of mistrust. And so it doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m. in the morning, like withdrawals go out. Um, and so you just have to know, like, sure, can they, there be a UI bug? Um, could, like, can we afford in the beginning of this year, we had 50% month over month growth two months in a row. And I was not stopped on client service to support that. So our, our CS, which has always been the highest in the industry to that point, because we knew client service would be a, a way to build trust with our clients. Um, in the beginning of the year, our call pickup rate went down to 20%. <laughs> I had like six people to support hundreds of thousands of clients. We were not ready for it. But it was okay for that to break momentarily as long as we knew that we were going to get back to it. Um, so I think the answer, long story short, is just like really know the key things that ensure that your business will survive. And those are the things like that have to be perfect. Hi, Flory. I'm Brittany. I'm a recruiter here at Bond. Huge fan of BlockFi, excited for the credit card to roll out. Uh, but my question revolves around people and growing a company. Uh, and as you know, uh, any successful company, you have to hire an incredible team around you. So uh, we're currently going through a bit of a hyper growth phase here at Bond. And as a first time founder, can you tell us how you prepared your new teammates, yourself, as well as what is it like to wrangle over 800 people? I think the thing I love the most about my job is that it changes every three to six months. So that's really cool <laughs> um, and means I never get bored. Um, I think that uh, one of the things I was most, so we were about 120 people at this time last year. Now we're 800. So we grew very quickly. Um, one of the most, one of the things I was most concerned about was culture um, and also quality of hires. So I knew that um, one of the things I loved is that we were known to be an extremely smart and humble team. Um, early on when we were writing down our hiring criteria, it was like, would you like to work with this person? Like, do you think they're smart? Do they bring something we don't have? And then we had like space-based, are they an asshole? Um, <laughs> so we have a no assholes policy. Um, I think it's helped us grow. And um, I also think just the culture of all hands on deck and being cross-functional was something I definitely wanted to make sure stayed true. Um, the way that I made sure that that happened as a founder was to hire key people that I trusted in each team and foster those relationships with those individuals, like to use a cliche term, like a brand ambassador, if you will, but just people that I trusted and knew that if this individual was on a panel, they were not going to let a bad person get into this company. Um, and so that, and also to continue, even though it, it's hard as we scale, but just making sure that I continue to meet with those people and have touch points, both so that I could understand what are struggles that teams are having and also ensure that that culture stayed true through that person. Um, I think the other thing, which is tougher to talk about, is I, I do believe in um, letting go of people quickly. Um, luckily, we have like a very low um, attrition rate. But I think when you make a mistake hiring, which will happen, especially if you're hyper growth, it's really important to protect your protect your team, right? And if you have an all-star and you have people who work incredibly, incredibly well, and you have someone on their team that maybe does like 20% of the work, 
you'll see, especially on CS, for example, like you'll see people that have like amazing CSATs and close so many tickets. And then they'll look to their neighbor and the person like messes up every answer. And that creates like more follow-ups and more work for the rest of the team. And that's also demotivating. So um, I do also believe in like, you can let go of people. Well, I, I think that there's a way to have exits where you provide feedback and you're transparent. And you also, especially with COVID, um, provide good exit packages so that people can land on their feet. And I think that transparent communication when people are underperforming is really important so that you never blindside anyone. Um, but I think protecting your team and and making sure that when when you do make a mistake that that it's okay and 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 to move past that and focus on protecting the great team that you have. Um, and also we built an amazing in-house recruitment team. So we don't use we sometimes use recruiters if they just land on our lap out, outside recruiters. But um, I do think pers- like I hired our head of people was like one of my friends in college. Like I knew this woman to her core. She's like a ball of sunshine and like the kindest human I've ever met. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I would like you to represent my company and be charged with like building it out. And so I think finding those key individuals that will help recruit. Um, and our head of recruiting is also from Bond Street. So I knew him too. Um, it, it's really important to make sure that like the gatekeepers on the way in are people that you trust. I know some of us on the team have sent in some Slido questions. We're just going to kick it over to Michaela to uh, handle the Slidos. Awesome. Yeah. Some of these we've actually kind of touched on through the, through the discussion. So I'll try to be a bit curated. Um, Question from from Roy, uh, our, our CEO and co-founder. Um, where do you see BlockFi in three years? So I think we can go in two different directions depending on what happens with blockchain technology and its adoption. Um, one thing I will say is that anyone who's working in a specific industry, specifically with new tech, people always think that the entire world is going to adopt our new technology way faster than it actually ever happens. Um, and so I think that's true of blockchain. I think it's going to take a very, very long time before you see um, our world interacting with blockchain systems on a day-to-day basis. For BlockFi, I think depending on how fast it develops, um, we could either go more the fintech route where going back to Brian's question about um, getting broad exposure, maybe three years from now, you're able to access kind of like a betterment style uh, portfolio management product where you can get um, broad exposure or we have like tax advantaged accounts. So you could have like an IRA that invests in like Bitcoin and different types of crypto assets. So going more deeper down the fintech route, um, the alternative, which is more of like my uh, crazy blockchain idea is if we are a globally recognized bank, basically for crypto, but not bank, (laughs) but if we're globally recognized like financial products provider, that means that people all over the world will know our brand and trust us. And to me, that means that three years from now, we could launch other products that um, leverage the blockchain that are maybe not fintech related. And we would immediately have users instantly using that system. So we could do more of like the virgin model of like pivoting into vastly different sectors and building things on the blockchain for the first time and immediately have users and trust on that system. So it just depends kind of on how the world goes in terms of like sentiment, 
uh, infrastructure to develop blockchain technology um, and what's available to us as a company. We had a live question that was just added by Roy, so I want to jump to that one. Um, and kind of kind of similar to what you're saying about you know the, the global nature here is you know how do you feel about China not recognizing Bitcoin a very recent development there? Yeah, um, I think that uh, what's really interesting about global kind of uh, banking systems at the moment is that depending on like if you take the U.S. for example, um, when you think about crypto. If you are the SEC or the CFTC, you already have a pre-existing box that crypto fits into, right? Uh, oh, it's an asset that you trade, right? Or, oh, this can be treated like a commodity. If you are the Fed and your responsibility is to protect the reserve currency, it's very easy to think about crypto as a threat to your reserve currency. And I think um, the Chinese government definitely has taken the stance that um, this is a threat. We don't want you to engage in these types of activities. Shut it down. Um, we actually have uh, Chris Strong Parlo, who is the former head of the CFTC on BlockFi's board. And he has a theory that um, in the US, our monetary system is very much like our infrastructure system, which is when we first built it, it was, we were extremely competitive. Like our roadways and our, and our highways were like the best in the world and no one had better um, transportation systems than we did. But over the last few decades, as a country, if we have failed to invest in those systems and as a result, we've fallen behind. And he has a thesis that our monetary system is actually undergoing the same process. And he believes that if we as a country were able to adopt blockchain technology and use it to upgrade our monetary systems, it would make us more competitive as a world power. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next few years in terms of which countries are going to shy away from it as a threat and which countries are going to recognize that this is an opportunity to upgrade the way that your entire system works and maybe expand the reach of your monetary system on a global scale. Um, and I definitely hope the U.S. is in the, the second vote. I hope you enjoyed this very special interchange with Flory Marquez. Interchange was founded inside a bond to benefit the developers, product owners, and executives at brands working inside the next generation of financial services. We hope that you're learning, enjoying, and maybe even laughing along. We love this world and we're passionate about every piece of it. Let us know what you'd like to learn more about, who you'd like to hear from, and what's getting you out of bed in the morning in this wild world of fintech in which we live. If you'd like to learn more about Bond, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at Zach at Bond.tech. Let's start a conversation. Check out the show notes and the Bond blog for a deeper dive if you're still listening and just can't get enough. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. Until our next interchange.